0: Are there new ethical issues in human oocyte research? You're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, your host, and with me today is Dr. Eric Levin. Dr. Levin's is a staff clinician, program in reproductive and adult endocrinology at the Eunice Kennedy Shriver National Institute of Child Health and Human Development, at the National Institute of Health and also an assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the Uniform Services University of the Health Services, both of which are in Bethesda, Maryland. Thank you very much, Dr. Levins, for joining us today.
1: Thank you for having
0: me. In your recent article in JAMA, you explored the field of research using reproductive material, oocytes, and that this may involve clinical issues not previously seen. What are some of the issues that you anticipate might appear?
1: Certainly, when you're dealing with research that involves reproductive materials, particularly with oocytes, it raises many ethical considerations. And I think unlike other research endeavors like cancer therapies, the research that involves the utilization of reproductive materials results in little to no direct benefit to the patient or to the volunteer in that situation. With that said, though, the value of clinical research does not necessarily rely on direct patient benefit, but rather on generation of generalizable knowledge. When we look into the ethical sort of situations that involve reproductive material, we have to first consider many of the aspects of research that come up in just typical research endeavors, but realizing that many of these ethical considerations may be magnified in the setting of using this type of tissue. So, for instance, we have to be very careful with the informed consent, for instance, that we are truly respecting the autonomy of patients. And we also have to make sure that there's a social value and a certain scientific validity so as not to exploit patients in these particular situations.
0: You've talked about volunteers and how important an informed consent is, that they indeed may not benefit personally from the research that's going on. Do you make that clear to them?
1: Yeah, I think you have to make that clear from the very beginning. And, you know, I I think that that falls under the heading of, in many sort of circles we speak about, informed consent. And a very important part of informed consent is protecting the patients, respecting their person, their being, and respecting their autonomy and their ability to make decisions. And this type of information has to be conveyed to potential volunteers that they may not directly benefit from this research, but the research is still valuable in the sense that it may generate therapies in the future. But it has to be explicitly stated to potential volunteers.
0: Well, part of their contribution is actually a piece of tissue, part of them. Do they actually know what's going to happen to the tissue? And when possibly the research ends, what happens to the oversights that haven't been used?
1: Yeah, again, that's a very important part of the adequate informed consent process that patients and volunteers in this situation realize what the disposition of the tissue is In this situation of potentially using oocytes that aren't used to generate life, but rather to generate scientific knowledge, if the intent of the research is to do that, then the disposition of the material should be for that purpose, and it should not involve any other purpose. So that tissue, if it's not used for research or investigation, should probably be destroyed.
0: So the volunteer knows that the tissue that they've gone through, and it's obviously, as you well know, being a gynecologist, it's not easy to get that tissue. They go through stimulation and side effects. That part of that tissue will be discarded.
1: If it is not used uh, for the intended research, then it has to be explicitly stated to the patient or the subject that this tissue will be discarded if it's not used for its intended purposes.
0: And, of course, they do go through certain... We talk about risk-benefit ratio all the time. We've talked about the benefits to the greater society when you don't really participate in direct benefit, are they also aware of the risk that they go through?
1: You know, again, this is a critical portion of the informed consent procedure and process. And really, we have to think of informed consent as not just a form or a letter or something that 's delivered to a patient, but rather a process that that continues on even after a participant enrolls in a research protocol. but benefits and risks have to be explicitly stated so that the volunteer can make their own informed choice
0: so they're aware of the hyperstimulation syndrome that up to 5% get, that there may be respiratory distress or renal failure, and even in the United Kingdom, five deaths have been reported. They're aware of all of that.
1: That's a critical piece of the informed consent. They must be aware of of those risks. Now, with regard to things such as hyperstimulation syndrome, in the setting of a research investigation where embryos are not being transplanted back into potential recipient, That would reduce the risk of ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. So I think that the risk would probably be much less than the 5% that's often quoted in many studies. But again, the intent needs to be there that the patients are aware of this when they volunteer.
0: You can't pick up the newspaper now without hearing somebody being offered what appears to me a large amount of money to be a donor, often in IVF procedures. Do we offer donors who are involved in research that same kind of compensation?
1: That's an excellent question, and I think one that's received a tremendous amount of discussion not only in the literature, but in the scientific literature, the ethical literature, and also in the lay press. When we talk about women donating oocytes for clinical purposes, that often involves compensation, and this has been considered for a long time now to be an ethically sound way to deliver care to others to provide a donor pool, while at the same time protecting donors from any coercive sort of effects. With that said, though, often you'll read, particularly in the lay press, of exorbitant fees being offered to potential donors, and this really violates justice to the patients because in the sense that the informed consent process that we were talking before can no longer occur in an environment that's free of coercion, and maybe not coercion, but certainly undue influence with exorbitant fees. On the other hand, a patient or a potential research volunteer does assume a certain amount of risk on behalf of society to generate knowledge. So the other side of the coin is that the ethical principle of justice would really ensure that there is some sort of compensation or some sort of benefit that the subject would receive you know, in terms of compensation, while it's been hotly debated issue, I think it can be really justified on the principles of sound ethical clinical research practice.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable from ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, and I'm speaking today with Dr. Eric Levens. Dr. Levens is a staff clinician in the Program of Reproduction and Adult Endocrinology at the National mm-hmm. Institute of Health, and we're talking about ethical issues that may become involved when we're dealing with human oocyte research. The other part of this is that in medical research, there are people who volunteer. What's our responsibility to them health-wise? Are we responsible to take care of all the side effects that may happen from their research? And some of these side effects may be in the future, especially psychological side effects, because one can see that giving up oocytes can, to a woman, have long-standing psychological effects? Are we doing enough for our volunteers?
1: I think the points, again, that you raised are interesting ones. And certainly, while the value of clinical research does not necessarily rely on direct patient benefit, we sh- certainly should ensure, to the best of our abilities, that potential research participants are protected from any harm. And this not only includes some of the physical risks that we discussed earlier with regard to the actual procedure of stimulating ovaries and retrieving oocytes, but it also involves potential for long-term psychological impact. And I think that this has been something that's been often overlooked, certainly in the literature regarding research involving reproductive materials, but it's been largely understudied even in the clinical practice of donating oocytes for clinical purposes, for purposes of donating to a potential recipient. So we have to protect against those things, and currently many of those things are not in place to be able to systematically study that. And as a result, in our recent article, we put forth the notion that really this should be an area that is investigated when this type of research is undertaken.
0: One of the most important things that are happening in medical research is certainly stem cell research. Do you see the use of oocytes possibly replacing the use of embryos and therefore politicizing this type of research?
1: Well, certainly the use of embryos has generated a tremendous amount of controversy and the use of oocytes may or may not. I think that at this point, it's really unknown. At the present, it doesn't seem like just the use of germ cells will be able to replace the use of embryos, but it's possible that these cells may be able to be converted into stem cell-like cell lines. An example that doesn't involve germ cells is the recent creation in the last couple of years of induced pluripotent stem cells, in which case fibroblast from skin can be converted by adding in certain genes into the genome, incorporating in the genome, thus generating a pluripotent stem cell. So whether that can be performed with the use of oocytes and thus eliminating the use of the, the generation of a, a fertilized oocyte is a possibility in the future.
0: It seems that many medical advances become very quickly politicized and that the ethicists should be on board. To answer all of these questions that suddenly the media jumps on and may actually do detriment to medical research advancing.
1: Well, I mean, certainly at the very early stages, even of conceptualizing a research endeavor, it's really important to make sure that there is an ethical dialogue that's being generated and that many of these things are fleshed out prior to even getting to the point where it reaches the media.
0: With our changing economy, do you see people, donors, being more vulnerable and needing more protection?
1: I think, regardless of the economy, it's an important thing to always consider: is sort of what what are the motivations behind someone wanting to donate uh, oocytes for research, and it's important to discern whether what these motivations are early on. Now, economics certainly could influence this, and in that you know more women may be willing to donate oocytes solely for financial gain if compensation were provided. But I think that that's really the responsibility of the investigators, people that are enrolling people, to really examine what the motivations are. Because, again, if a patient is solely motivated only by the compensation, then it's really impossible to obtain an adequate informed consent from these people.
0: We are certainly worried that in order to get compensation, we've seen it in other medical research where people will not tell their complete or honest medical history, which, again, can certainly affect your research. Do you see this being a risk?
1: Most certainly, and I, th- I think that that's even, in my view, more of a concern when excessive compensation is being proposed, that people, women in this case, would be more inclined to withhold important medical information that might not only compromise their own health as they proceed through the course of a research protocol, but also may thwart the efforts of the investigation in and of itself.
0: We talked about compensation in terms of dollars, but do you ever see, say, somebody who is interested in receiving IVF and can't afford it, but is willing to donate some of her eggs in return for medical treatment to help her become pregnant?
1: Yes. I mean, this is certainly something that's been proposed and has been a part of um, oocyte research for a while often it's referred to as oocyte sharing, in which a portion of those oocytes may go to research to offset the costs of a particular treatment protocol. And while this has been used in some countries and some areas, it's a very difficult issue with regard to using reproductive materials. And And I think It's difficult in the sense that one of the essential components of ethical research, which was set out by the Belmont Report, now a couple decades old, is that you really have to separate a research endeavor from a clinical treatment or therapeutic endeavor. And by allowing these sort of arrangements where costs are offset for research and clinical practice... It becomes impossible to be able to separate those. So I think that these are really bad ideas, mostly from a patient protection standpoint, that these arrangements continue.
0: I want to thank Dr. Eric Lovins for being with us today. We've been discussing the very complex new issues having to do with medical research when human oocytes are involved. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable from ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. ReachMD, online, on demand, and on air. Please visit us at ReachMD.com and thank you for listening.